0: read this book? A lot of people have, and they found it was one of the most vivid, powerful stories they'd ever come across. While it's not ethical for an actor to talk about a picture he's in, in public that is, I'm going to do it anyway. The Oxbow Incident is the thrilling, dramatic story of the Old West and its fabulous characters as they really were. Down in Texas where I come from, we just go out and get a man and string him up. That's
1: right. I say stretch him. ain't just a rustler we're after, it's a murderer.
2: Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Chris and joined, as always, by the wonderful Samantha and Emily. Ladies, how are you? Great. I'm so happy to be here again. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, we are talking about another very short movie. I love that Emily shouted that out on Twitter the other day, that these movies are very short. I can't guarantee that will be a thing. We are talking about a movie that's only an hour and 15 minutes. 1943's The Oxbow Incident, and we are joined by the fantastic Dana Andrews biographer Carl Rolison. Carl, how are you?
0: I'm doing good.
2: We thank you so much for wanting to hang out and talk with us about this movie and its cast and everything. But before we talk about that, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should we do additional bonus pods, including double features, looking at remakes and Based on a True podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We have upcoming a new episode of Based on a True podcast, looking at the really weird Kevin Klein, Dakota Fanning starring movie, The Last of Robin Hood. Did you ever need to see a movie about Errol Flynn's last relationship with a teenage girl? Well, we're going to talk about the fact that they made that into a movie. We also give out regular care packages of movies and other gifts. And let you guess on an episode. It's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget to order my book. But have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems and Inspired Our Favorite Movies? You can order that wherever you get books alongside Emily's book. Emily, you want to shout out your book real quick? Thank you so much. Yeah, I have a book series if you're into noir
3: mysteries. It's called the Girl Friday Mysteries, the first one's called Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man. If you're into girl PIs in 1950 settings, this is the book for you. Thank you for letting me chat about it.
2: And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis, as well as commissioned work by the fantastic Terrence Hilt. You can get all sorts of fun things on a mug, including our popular Makoko mugs. We have our most recent Welcome to the Loy side in honor of both Myrna Loy and May the 4th. And my personal favorite, our tribute to the weird bear in the trailer for The Moon is Blue. You can find all that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. Let's talk about The Oxbow Incident. What an amazing movie that is. Carl, you have written a lot of books. You've looked at Westerns. You've talked about Walter Brennan. But we are talking about The Oxbow Incident, which you are the author of Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews. What is it about Andrews in this role in particular and just in general that made you want to tell his story?
0: The film that I first watched Dana Andrews in was Laura. What really interested me in him was his quiet intensity, the underplaying of the character, which fit, of course, the role he was playing of a detective. But that demeanor, that understated style of acting really appealed to me. I wanted to know more about him. Once I became editor of the Hollywood Legends series published by University Press in Mississippi, what happened, in fact, was one of his daughters, one of Dana Andrews's daughters, Susan, called the press because years earlier, author had committed himself to doing a Dana Andrews biography and never followed through. Did some interviews, did some work, but never published the book. And the family was disappointed. They were looking for another biographer. Susan Andrews called the press and asked the director, do you know anybody who might want to do a biography of Dana Andrews? So then the director called me and she said, do you know anybody who might want to do a biography of Dana Andrews? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. Who's that? She said, I said, me. (laughs) In spite of my interest in Dana Andrews, I had never really thought of doing a biography And my response was really from the gut, by which I mean, I didn't know, was there an archive? Was the family going to be cooperative? I always do books that are independent. I don't believe in authorized biography, and I don't want anyone looking over my shoulder. It's got to be my book entirely. I found in Susan Andrews, someone who was completely open to that approach, who had an archive. That her father had left. Her father had written letters. He had kept a journal, just a treasure trove of stuff, which she opened up to me entirely. And although she did read the book before it was published, because I wanted to make sure there weren't any errors of fact in it, she never questioned what I was doing. So it was really a thrilling collaboration, really, not only with her, but her sister, her brother. Other relatives in the family came from a large Texas family. That was astonishing. It's not astonishing maybe to someone who watches the Oxbow incident, but if you've watched films like Laura or The Best Years of Our Lives, and someone tells you, this guy came from Texas, (laughs) you would say, what? Because the accent was entirely erased in his training as an actor.
2: What I appreciate about the biography, and we talk about this a lot, that some biographers You fall into two traps, right, where you either want to bring up the salaciousness and the dirty parts, or you want to paint a portrait of a saint. This person was perfect. Your book looks at both sides of that. Can you talk about how you wanted to approach his story and things you wanted to tell that are both sides of that coin that is being a person?
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, very early on, that was really important. All of my biographies deal with the whole person. For almost any human being, they have flaws, faults, sometimes very serious flaws, and opinions, politics that I don't necessarily agree with, all sorts of things can be true, which is why it's really important to make the book your own. I was very concerned with that, with exploring that part of Dana Andrews. The other thing is, and this was true, especially of my earlier biography that I did of the literary figure, Rebecca West, the family was very conscious of Dana Andrews's faults. The main fault being really his alcoholism, which was a disaster for his children. And yet at the same time, they had such compassion for him. Unlike many of these stories of alcoholics, this one had a good ending. He was able to beat it He was able to not only stop drinking, but in the very last phases of his career, do theater with his wife, who had been a very fine actress and who had more or less given up her acting career. So he was able to come full circle. It was such a story of redemption, which is a very Hollywood story. You can't kill off Gary Cooper or Dana Andrews or Clark Gable. They've got to somehow survive. And people say, well, that's not realistic. And yet here is a real life story of someone who was redeemed and who did turn himself around after many decades of serious drinking that, as I said, disturbed his family, but also damaged his career. He certainly lost some roles that he probably certainly would have been in the running for. He wasn't a mean drunk. It's just that he would not report to the set or they would have to shoot around him. So that became a real problem. So I had to work through all that. Fortunately, as I say, not only was his family willing to tolerate my approach to that, they would give me the stories of what it was like. For instance, his oldest daughter, Catherine, she said his alcoholism was so persistent when friends came over, He was passed out on the floor and they would walk over him. She'd say, oh, that's my father. He's passed out.
2: Wow. I know that the Oxbow incident is not considered his movie. I would disagree because I think that up until a certain point, you're watching this movie where it's about a posse. They're going to get unseen murderers. But once he shows up and alongside him, the other two characters, including one played by Anthony Quinn, The movie really takes a turn. And I was surprised. I've seen this twice now. It's one of those movies you can only watch a couple times a year just because it's so sad. But I hadn't seen it in a long time. And to rewatch it, I forgot that A, it was an hour and 15 minutes and that Dana Andrews doesn't actually show up until at least about 40-ish minutes into the movie. But once he does, the movie changes. And it really does become his film in a very brief amount of time. What did the Oxbow incident mean to his career at that time?
0: Essentially, he had been the second lead, starting in the late 1930s and early 40s, to people like Tyrone Power and Randolph Scott. When he was first assigned to a contract by Samuel Goldwyn's company, he was thought of as, they used the term, character lead. He might be the main character in the film, but he wasn't really thought of as a dashing, leading man. And that wouldn't come until after Oxbow. That would come with Laura. You could say he was a star because his name was above the title of the film in subsequent films. What Oxbow meant, though, was when you're the second lead, not as much is demanded of you. Even if you're as an actor, you put everything into it. People do not think of you as certainly as the star. You're supporting, in support. Although the Oxbow incident, you can't say he's the leading man. After all, Henry Fonda's in the picture, and the picture wouldn't have been made without Henry Fonda's belief in it. But you're right. To say, in a sense, it is Dana Andrews' film, because the film simply wouldn't work without that performance. I don't think anyone seeing Dana Andrews in that startling first scene when they come upon him can, for a moment, think that he's guilty of cattle rustling they're suspicious because they're a lynch mob. They're out to get somebody. And so they're not reading his psychology except for the Henry Fonda character who begins to have his doubts. But Dana Andrews plays it with such sincerity, such a electrifying sincerity, that it's just stunning. Daryl Zanuck used to say, the most important thing in a film, you have to have a character, a hero or a heroine, for whom the audience had a rooting interest. So it's heartbreaking. That's why no one wanted to make The Aspoe Incident. It was a highly praised novel, but no one wanted to make it because they thought, well, this is a downer. (laughs) It doesn't end in saving the hero by any means. And it's curious. I don't think anybody knows precisely why Daryl Zanuck supported a film like that. Except that, again, he could see in the Dana Andrews character, yeah, you're going to have a rooting interest with this guy. This guy's going to, even though he doesn't appear until, as you say, 40 minutes into the film, once he's there, the film just clicks. You get wonderful character studies. It's real ensemble playing in this film. There are plenty of other good performances, but they've got to wrap around the Dana Andrews character. He's so appealing of course he's afraid, but there's a kind of stoicism in his character of a meeting of fate that we all wonder, faced in such a situation, could we behave so well? And not just give way either to hysteria or just self-pity or pleading. The tonal balance, the way he gets the emotions just right. In that sense, it was his breakout role, even though Laura is the film that made him the star. Anyone seeing Oxbow Incident would have had no doubt this man could carry a picture.
1: I'm coming at this as such a huge Dana Andrews fan. I've seen everything from Crash Dive, as you pointed out, Carl, too, Spy in Your Eye, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, Boomerang, State Fair. I feel like I had seen everything of Dana Andrews. But I had not seen this film until yesterday. Like you said, coming from someone who had seen Laura, who had seen Best Series of Our Lives, who had seen just about, I thought, everything that Dana Andrews had to offer, seeing him in a role like this where he really just shows such genuine, sincere emotion and such a wide range of emotion, I was really thrown for a loop you can take your hat off too to 20th Century Fox at the time. As a studio in the 40s, they were making such, like I said, sincere, genuine pictures with so much heart, really talking about these serious issues. And I think of something like Gentleman's Agreement, or I think of something like The Grapes of Wrath that Henry Fonda also starred in. They were making so many movies at that time that other studios wouldn't have even touched, talking about those really dark, fascinating subjects.
0: Also, Dana Andrews had this dual contract. The Goldwyn company signed him up, but Goldwyn essentially sold half the contract to 20th Century Fox, which was Dana Andrews' great good fortune, because Goldwyn only made one or two pictures a year. And so he was often loaned out to 20th Century Fox in these roles. And the interesting thing is that Goldwyn was always... Looking for leading men actually to replace the current subject I'm working on now, Ronald Coleman, who had been the, the big Goldman star. And Goldman was always looking for someone like David Niven or uh, Dana Andrews to be the next Ronald Coleman. So one of the things he did to Dana Andrews, for instance, Dana's hair was naturally curly, but they waved it. They didn't exactly make it straight, but they certainly tame those curls. And he had, in most of his roles, a much shorter haircut than what you see in an Oxbow incident. It's a minor detail, you might say, but that longer hair and the fact that he could wear it, in a sense, naturally, let it grow and let the curls show, fueled the naturalism, the authenticity of that role. The other thing I want to mention about the film, too, before I forget, is the screenwriter, Lamar Trotty, who is a real veteran who wrote just a superb screenplay, took the Walter Van Tilburg Clark novel. And as you said, it's an hour and 15 minutes. It's really an extraordinary achievement. One of the measures of that achievement, for me anyway, is one of my other biographical subjects is William Faulkner, who spent more than 20 years off and on in Hollywood writing screenplays. And I found a letter of Faulkner's to Lamar Trotty, and what you have to keep in mind is Faulkner didn't even particularly like The Oxbow Incident, the novel. When it came out, he said, well, I don't know what all the hubbub is about. He, wasn't, he just wasn't that impressed. But he was impressed as hell with the screenplay for The Oxbow Incident. So he wrote this letter to Lamar Trotty saying, God, you did a fantastic job. Faulkner never wrote letters like that, especially in Hollywood. And to write that to Lamar Trotty, I thought, wow. That's really something, and I think Faulkner, of course, was right. The the compressed aura of the inexorable execution, lynching of these men. The film is relentless. You're right, too, about 20th Century Fox. Who else could have made this film? It could only have been made because of Daryl Zanuck, but also because of Henry Fonda, who really wanted to do this picture, and the director, William Wellman. He promised 20th Century Fox, I'll do two other pictures, whatever you want. I don't care how crappy they are. I'll do them if you let me do Oxbow incident. It was this concatenation, uh, this convergence of factors and people that is really unusual. the really unusual Hollywood story for that reason.
1: Not to dip too much into spoilers, I just have to point out, I was reading that In the original novel, that the letter isn't actually revealed in its entirety. And that choice, that deliberate choice to include the letter in the script is really part of what makes it such a brilliant screenplay. I completely agree with you. That has a lot to do with it, including the letter. It really helps with the plot and helps with how the audience is feeling as a reaction to the events of the film.
0: Yeah, I think so. There's so much there in terms of American history that Trotty gets in and that viewers may not even think about. But when you think about the leader of the lynch mob, essentially he's an ex-Confederate officer, and he is just looking for something, something to replace that lost cause, to not resurrect his career exactly. I mean, what happens actually is just the opposite. But he's thinking somehow that he's going to reclaim this position of authority. Of course, the irony is that he can't. He's so rigid in his thinking that making him this ex-confederate officer is is perfect
3: because I'm very bleak and I look these sorts of things up. I had to look up lynching statistics of when this movie took place and demographics. Statistically, the peak of, the worst year for these crimes was 1892, and the movie takes place in 1885. So this is really, truly the ramping up to the worst extrajudicial violence in American history, to know how well they touched into that for both the history of the novel, the history of the film, and then for the film to be doing this in the 1940s when America's deeply grappling with racial violence, It was just really eye-opening to me of how political this film actually is and what they're really grappling with, with the legacy of a war at that point that had only really closed less than a hundred years prior. It was fascinating.
0: That's absolutely true. And of course, there is a Black character in the film too, who has some very interesting commentary on what's going on in this lynching scene. And the other thing I want to say about that, there is this racial dimension But there's also a fact that lynchings, although they are primarily associated with the lynching of black people, whites were lynched too. There's a Fritz Lang film called Fury, made in 1936, which is about a lynching in California. Mm -hmm. And the man who's being lynched is a white man. But it's the same theme, taking justice in your own hands and often lynching people who aren't guilty at all. The film is exploring that. At a time when in the United States, there's the patriotic war, there's the desire to make America feel good about itself, fighting the fascists and so on, and to deal with what in effect is a homegrown fascism, to go back to what I said before, it's a miracle this movie was made because it just did not compute with what the other studios were doing.
1: Especially in the time that it was made, As I was watching a lot of the themes, especially wrongful accusation, you see pop up so much in a lot more currently revered later works. Especially, I think of Alfred Hitchcock, The Wrong Man. I think of The Lodger, that kind of work and those themes that you see through his work. And then another thing that this really made me feel like I was watching a long form episode of The Twilight Zone. (laughs) <laughs> because so many of the themes that you see in this, the Twilight Zone, there are so many Western episodes. There are so many episodes where you see that effect of mob mentality, like the monsters who do on Maple Street, me being such a Twilight Zone fan. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like I'm watching an episode of the Twilight Zone with Henry Fonda and Dana Andrews 20 years before the Twilight Zone, which I thought was so fascinating.
0: Well, that's a good point to make, too, because of the way the film was made in a studio. It wasn't made on location. You don't get these vast Western spaces that you associate with most Westerns. Everything is much more compressed in terms of space. The choreography of the film, which is I spent some time on in my Dean Andrews book, was just absolutely fascinating. The way they enter and the exit on those horses as they descend, in a sense, into a pit of human depravity, in a way is emphasized in a way perhaps better than it could be if the film had been shot on location. A very small budget. Zanuck I'm was wondering... willing them for them to do this, but they weren't going to put in the kind of budget that you would expect uh, in a Western.
3: I'm sorry to nerd out a little bit on this, but I'm wondering if that's one of the things that William Faulkner actually appreciated so much about this, because one of the hallmarks of Gothic literature is that sense of closeness and that sense yeah. of being unable to escape. Faulkner is obviously one one of the most heralded Southern Gothic writers. And this almost feels like a Western Gothic of you have a small town that is only one street, that is only one bar. And it seems everybody is encased in this hollow when the movie, the structure actually continues. It's an incredibly close Gothic oppressiveness that While you're watching this, if there was a wide open vista, you would say, run for it. The hills, Dana Andrews, go for it. But because they're (laughs) in a closed hollow, he can't go anywhere. The second they surround him, you know that their fate is sealed and it's incredibly oppressive.
0: It's making a virtue of necessity. No one's got permission to go out in location and spend a lot of money and location work. And so how do we make it work in a studio? And of course they do not even knowing
1: how this film ends i knew just based on the score and based on that really confined set like you said emily the second that they entered that situation i didn't know how it was going to end for them but i just had that feeling of doom that they weren't going to leave you totally hit the nail on the head with that it's one of many things i appreciate
2: about this movie because It ages, unfortunately, so well. You can watch this today. And the concept of vigilante justice, fascism, a little bit of racism, the disinformation campaign that pops up now, as we would call it disinformation. But in 1943, this whole concept of, well, they assume that a murder has taken place. They don't wait in order to find out more information. They immediately just decide we have to go seek vengeance. We have to go out and get the people that did this. What I really noticed that was hard to ignore just about our own political discourse watching this is the fact that they tell Gil, Henry Fonda's character at the beginning, you don't want the guy who got deputized to go out there because if he goes out there, it's going to be bad. The minute that that character finds out that there is a murder. He's deputizing everybody, which they're like, you can't deputize as a deputy. You've already been deputized. You don't get to just extend it out to whoever you want. <laughs> but the whole concept of justice, you realize just how precarious it is. And that if one person decides to just run ham with the whole thing, you have nothing left. I wanted to point out, I love that Emily had unfortunate lynching statistics because this is coming out in 43. The war, World War II doesn't end until... 45 ish in the US. Want more ticklish business? Join us over on Patreon alongside patrons Melanie, Mick F., Jacob Haller, David Floyd, Danny, Christine Meyer, Andrew Hop, Amy Hart, and Allie Moore. Patrons listen to episodes 48 hours early receive regular guests, and can even guest on an episode of their choice. Patreon also helps us create content like our TCM Classic Film Festival audio episodes and series like Six Weeks with a Thin Man, Being Elvis, Based on a True Podcast, and Doubled Features. It's all on patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget to get your favorite ticklishbiz moments immortalized on merch at a Redbubble shop at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklishbiz. Redbubble is the home for our Gene and Judy Makoko mugs, as well as our May the 4th Welcome to the Lloyd's Side art craft crafted by artist Terence Hills. We thank you for your support. Now back to the ship. We didn't really know the atrocities that were going on in Europe, but what often people forget is how other minorities tend to be affected by violence. And I think it's really telling that the other two men that are involved in this are Anthony Quinn's character who is Latino and Francis Ford's character who is mentally delayed. That's really striking to me because, especially nowadays, we've had anti-Latin violence. We have a lot of crimes that are committed against the disabled and the mentally disabled. So it's very deliberate that those are the other two characters that are often considered scapegoats, even now in society. You watch the news, people say, oh, of course it's that guy. It's a movie that I hate to say ages well. But it has really aged well in a very unfortunate way. The themes and the situation are universal. The Western gets a bum rap for being a very dated genre, but you I know. think it also is a very relevant genre because it reflects American ideals. And unfortunately, American ideals don't always change as quickly as we would like.
0: There's a lot of bullying in the film. Who's to say how many people in a lynch might not go along with it? And they're either coerced into it or become swept up, in a sense, in the firm, misguided convictions of the moment. There's a line in the film, which I didn't think that much about, which one of the lynchers, matter of fact, we said, well, of course, we're going to lynch. Him. That's what we do in Texas. I saw that film in Texas at a Dana Andrews Film Festival in which I was speaking, the organizer of the festival showed the Oxbow incident, a room, a little museum full of Texans. When that guy says in the film, I'm from Texas, this is how we do it, people roared. It's not that they roared their approval, but it was the roar of recognition. This wasn't some Easterner saying this about, Texans. This was a man who was from Texas saying that about Texas and not being ashamed of it. That just really struck a chord in that audience. It's amazing when you see a film with a bunch of people. I don't do that very much these days. I'm usually, as most of us watching online, flat screen TV. It can make a difference what you suddenly realize, the significance of a film, how people respond to it.
2: I did want to throw out, we talked about the Differences from the novel, just the novel in general, it had to have a huge impact because I watched the trailer for this movie, which doesn't even give much indication about the film. It is very much a typical adaptation trailer of the era where it's just Henry Fonda holding the book up being like, you read this book? And people might get shocked by that today. But back then, Reading in the movies, right, and radio or like the big things, I always explain to people books had such an ability to permeate the zeitgeist. So if you're watching this trailer, Henry Fonda holding that book up does mean something to a lot of people because a lot of people probably read that book. I love that just having written a book about adaptations. I love that the whole trailer is just The movie's great. I'm sure you'll want to see clips of it, but look at this book cover. It's great. And I'm telling you how much I love the book. Some other big discrepancies between book and novel that I didn't know about is that the Tetley character, our Confederate, who I love that Gil says he didn't even see the South till after the war ended. His bona fides are a bit dubious from the beginning. The book ends with his son, who is soft, as the movie shows us throughout the film, hanging himself, and then Tetley commits Harry Carey and falls on his sword. The most shocking element is, is, and the movie does this so well. Again, it's the combination of the Lamar Trotty script with Bill Wellman's direction. Is that when they come out of the valley, they're all celebrating. The sheriff shows up. Law and order has come to restore everything. And they say, We got the guys that killed Larry Kincaid. And he's like, What? Larry Kincaid's yeah. not dead. Yeah. It's a gut punch. Whether you've seen this movie once or a hundred times, you always wish for a second that maybe he really was dead. It would mean something. And of course, he is not dead. They've killed these people for nothing. And the movie ends with this belief that justice will prevail, these people will go to jail they will get the justice that was denied the three men that they have murdered. The book ends with the sheriff staring them all down and saying that he's going to forget everything that he has seen. I get why you don't do that in Hollywood film, especially in 1943. It's one of those instances where I appreciate the ending of the novel just as much as the ending of the film. And I don't know if I would have wanted to see that, but I kind of want to see that.
0: Yeah, I'm conflicted about that. The film has its own sort of logic and its own place in a period of time. And it's certainly daring for its time, but you can only go so far. It's like if you've seen the film Meet John Doe with Gary Cooper, is he going to throw himself off the top of the building? (laughs) And someone says to Frank Capri, you can't kill Gary Cooper. (laughs) There is that problem. Probably couldn't have been able to kill Dana Andrews if that hadn't come so early in his career.
3: It's interesting to juxtapose this to Laura, probably the most famous Dana Andrews movie, is that the cynicism of noir, of justice, even if it's delivered, it's not enough. It's not going to be good enough. And so to compare that to this movie's ending, which is these men are lamenting the crimes because they know they're going to be punished for their horrid mistake versus the book, which is a very noir ending of they are not going to be held accountable for anything that they've done, is a very interesting perspective and way to parse the changing ideas of American justice and law that's certainly happening in the 1940s.
1: I can't help but feel, this is going to sound kind of weird, I don't think it really matters whether the men are actually held legally responsible for killing the men or not. The point at the end, especially when they read the letter, is that emotionally they're going to have to live with it for the rest of their lives. It wouldn't have made much of a difference whether they were actually legally held accountable or not, because I think the point is that they have all of this emotional trauma now and they have to live with this horrible decision that they made.
0: Yeah, and so does the audience. They're sort of a stand-in for the audience in a way. Living our lives while these kinds of injustices go on and aren't necessarily punished, but we're punished for them in a way because that's the kind of world we have to live in.
2: I do want to shout out Arthur C. Miller's cinematography in this because Mm. we often hear nowadays with our culture, especially American culture and gun violence and all of that, that Americans are part of a death cult. You see it really exemplified in this movie, that concept of how certain people celebrate death and destruction. Because as the movie starts to ramp up to its climax, there are such evocative images of death and destruction, specifically when they're eating. The whole posse is eating right before they're going to do this. And you just see them eating down in the bottom of the frame with the nooses hanging in the background and then after they've committed the crime you just see the shadows of all three men on the ground hanging from the ropes i was surprised that in 1943 we were going to show bodies even though we're not seeing the physical bodies but it is a visual awareness that these characters have been killed which i thought was really really evocative and again showcases the gravity of the concept of taking a life we are any film viewer desensitized especially in america to images of violence and yet seeing that image in this film just shows this weight of these people have been viciously slain through no fault of their own it's like carl said the viewer is the one that has to witness that and see it it's so important to point out that the
3: posse has guns They have faster means of taking the lives of these people, of executing these people. And then on top of that, not only are they choosing an incredibly slow, laborious, horrible way of murdering someone, they wait all night in order to do it. They show up at two, three o'clock in the morning very explicitly and say, we are going to wait until dawn to even do this. You're going to have a meal. We're going to chat with you. We're going to ask you about your children. And they're treating it as though it's a party the entire time. It's on the, the people at the periphery of the posse are acting as though it's a barbecue and it's a social event. It's absolutely stunning to me that they got away with being as explicit as they were about this in, in 1943.
0: That often happened at lynchings. They were almost like parties for some people. People took pictures, photographs. They put them on postcards. The whole history of lynching is extraordinary. And the film gets it right.
1: It's so fascinating when I was reading the trivia for this film that part of the reason why Henry Fonda was so desperate to make this film and so keen on it was because he had witnessed a lynching himself mm. and that it had really stuck with him. I'm a really big fan of the Western genre, which isn't really super loved these days. I, mean, I talk to so many younger modern fans of classic cinema, they throw the Western genre out a lot of the time. And I think one of the reasons why the western genre isn't taken as seriously is because they are so willy-nilly with life. You'll watch a western, and as you said, Emily, they have guns. They shoot. You can see them shoot 20 people in one scene, and you don't feel anything because you have no connection to the character. They don't build that emotional connection This is honestly probably my new favorite Western because it really fixes that problem. We feel so deeply connected to these people who have been killed. The Western
2: genre, people assume that it is dated. They assume that, A, we have progressed because it's showing, oh, a bunch of white cowboys going in and colonizing. And we've clearly gotten better, right? And that's why I think the Western is still a very, very relevant genre because it shows how we have not changed, if anything, how things have stayed the same, which is shocking. I did want to point out, we talked about Gary Cooper briefly. He was offered the role of Gil Carter that Henry Fonda got. He turned it down, and I'm very glad for that because my bias and antipathy towards Gary Cooper aside, he would have not worked. You need an everyman. It's telling that, Of the films that Henry Fonda made for Fox, which most of them he did not like, it was this and The Grapes of Wrath. And this is very much a Grapes of Wrath type of character, so I can see why he loved it so much. But I read, too, that Bill Wellman had also tried to get the rights to this for a long time, and the rights holders told him that any adaptation that would be made would require the casting of Mae West. I don't know why, and I don't honestly know where Mae West would have fit. Would she have been the Jane Darwell character?
0: I guess. Karen
1: of the group. I would have loved to see that. I was reading that too, and that Bill Wellman thought it was so ridiculous. I thought it was so ridiculous until you said that. Now that you have said that, I wish Mae West had played Jane Darwell's <laughs> I mean,
2: maybe she would have turned in something great. Jane Darwell, we want to talk about relevance to today. I do find it very relevant that we have a woman in this posse, Jane Darwell's character, and she really is the Karen of the whole group. She's the one that says, I'm going to do this and everything's great. She's very, very highly relevant to this. This was nominated for Best Picture. That was the only Academy Award that it was nominated for. It was not nominated anywhere else, which is horrific for me to think about because I see several Oscars right there for the script, for Henry Fonda, for Dana Andrews, cinematography. There should have been way more Oscars. Does anybody want to guess what did win over the Oxbow incident? It's a pretty famous film.
1: I know that that was the year Casablanca was eligible. You would be
2: correct. Casablanca did win. (laughs) I get it. I can't complain too much. You're not gonna beat a juggernaut. I get it. I'm still very, very shocked. It does still hold the record for being the only movie to be nominated for Best Picture and absolutely nothing else. I just don't know how that worked out. Nothing? Zip? I thought for sure Dana Andrews was getting something. Come on. He was (laughs) amazing. He was a- It's it's one of those great things we talk about during the Oscars every year. Oh, the movie's the best picture, which means it was the best at everything. Clearly not, because you didn't feel the need to recognize anything else from this. It's like when they nominate female directed film for best picture, but they don't nominate her for director, and you're like, oh, so I guess- The movie didn't manage to have any good direction, but it was the best movie of the year. Make it make sense.
1: It directed Um. itself. The only thing that I have to say, just because I did the whole podcast episode on 1943 Oscar year, it was a tough year. We've talked about so many movies on this podcast that were part of that year. Casablanca, the fact that it fell into 1943, when honestly, I think it shouldn't have because it premiered in 1942. (laughs) That affected film history so much and the Oscars because if you think about it competing in 1942 then you wouldn't have Yankee Doodle Dandy winning it's just a whole butterfly effect but I like to believe now that you have mentioned it Kristen I would hope that this would have won some screenplay awards at least if Casablanca had been off the ballot but if it wasn't even nominated I don't even know I just can't with the Oscars anymore
2: none of us can none of us can Do we want to throw out anything else before we start wrapping it up?
1: We didn't give enough love to Anthony Quinn. I just have to say he's so great in this as well. Just a shout out to him. It's such an early one of his. It's such a strong one.
2: What I appreciate about his performance is you have the stereotypical Latino character, the other guy that is the Mexican stereotype. He talks in the Frito Bandito-esque accent. He's got the big hat. You have that character. But when Anthony Quinn's character shows up, he is not like that. He is sophisticated. He's dressed very well. He says he speaks 10 languages, including Spanish and English. (laughs) I love that about the character. Without belaboring the point, the script is saying that film, and I think society, you have this depiction of what a Mexican is. Here's actually a depiction of what a mexican is it's very different than what film has allowed us to say these characters are without saying much and again it's not revolutionary progress but it does do its part to try to flip the script on stereotyping of that time the fact that we have a man of color in this film who has that fantastic speech with henry fonda's character where he's talking about witnessing a lynching and he's like oh well what did it look like and he's like well no one could really see." There's a lot of really specific line reading about characters not being able to see things. Case in point, Gil's friend gets shot in the middle of the night and one of the guys says, "Well, How was I supposed to know? I can't see you. It's dark out here. The entire movie reminds you that these characters do not know anything. They do not know that these people are guilty or innocent. They just don't care. They are literally flying blind and they are fine with that. It's just such a good movie. I love it so much. I'm so glad that we got to talk about it. I'm glad we got to talk about it with Carl. We just went right into it. But Samantha, Emily, I want you guys to give final thoughts because you both had come at this for the first time.
1: Coming at this as a huge Dana Andrews devotee, a huge Henry Fonda devotee. I love Bill Wellman. It's all of the right elements together. I'm amazed that they got this in under an hour and a half this is probably my new favorite Western. Before it was Winchester 73, but it just goes to show that the Western genre is overlooked these days in the sense that there are so many great psychological examples of just deep personal relationships in Westerns that just get overlooked all the time. And I think this is a perfect example of that, that people should see.
3: To be honest with you, I would not be surprised. You know how we're seeing a huge resurgence of detective fiction and noir fiction? It would not surprise me at all if Westerns got a huge bump because they are very correlatory. If you think about detective fiction as a white knight allegory of someone seeking justice outside of the structure of societal justice, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw a huge resurgence in the Western genre of people who are truly alone in a wasteland trying to do the best and trying to rebuild or build a society that feels just for everybody who's living there. Obviously, the Western genre has had gender issues and race issues since the very, very, very beginning. But I think as we are slowly starting to grapple with the true history of America, I wouldn't surprise me if we saw more Westerns focusing on Black people who were moving out West and finding freedom and personhood out there. If we see a new revelation of the Western, I would welcome it with open arms. I think that's a really fertile place for us to explore America and America's history. It has an actual genesis in this movie that I didn't realize. I had seen this movie for the first time. I've only just recently started getting into Westerns. This is a perfect place for people to Realign their understanding of what the Western genre actually is.
0: Emily said it well. Recognition of this film might be tied ultimately to what happens with the Western in the coming decades. I wonder if maybe Jane Campion's recent film, her Western, is a forerunner, a presage of things to come in terms of reevaluating the genre. And you're going to get actors like Cumberbatch in that film, not associated with that kind of film, it's going to be a challenge for actors now who often become executive producers, too, in the way the industry works, in a way they'll go back to someone with the heft of Henry Fonda that can get these pictures made, get them bankrolled and so on. It's a possibility anyway.
2: Carl, it was so great to sit down and talk with you, your biography on Dan Andrews, all your books are fantastic. Feel free to let the audience know where they can find you on social media, anything you have upcoming, what should they be on the lookout for?
0: I'm very active on Twitter and Facebook, the old-style social media, almost every day. The Dane Andrews biography in fact will be coming out in, in paperback soon. It hasn't been in paperback before, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm an easy person to find on social media commenting almost every day, on, often on film. The subject I'm working on now, which is Ronald Coleman, who he was the model for Dana Andrews in terms of underplaying, understating acting. He's the one that made the transition from the silent film to the talking film and really showed actors, including Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper's first starring role in a silence film was the winning of Barbara Wirth. It was essentially under Coleman's tutelage that cooper developed his own particular style for both silent and sound film
2: well before we say goodbye we actually got a ticklish business mystery that we're hoping somebody might be able to solve either one of us or a listener this comes to us from hannah murray hannah says hi team love the podcast wondering if i could pick your brain I remember watching an ensemble dance scene in a movie where the chorus girls were dressed like strawberries and chocolates, and I think dancing around milk or a milkshake. I feel like it was in color, so probably 1940s or 1950s. I can't find it again anywhere, and it's bugging me. Any clue what movie it's from? Love from Australia, Hannah.
1: I got nothing. That's surprising. I watch a lot of musicals. Why does that feel familiar, (laughs) though? Right? it doesn't feel familiar to me unfortunately well, hannah
2: we are on the mystery we are going to try to see what we can find out about this and solve it but listeners if you know what hannah is referring to let us know send us a tweet at ticklish underscore biz leave it on our facebook page or our instagram at ticklish biz or you can email it to us at ticklishbiz@gmail.com at gmail.com and maybe we can help Solve a classic film mystery. I want to know what this is. That's going to close us out for this episode. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Reviews matter. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. You can again follow us on all social media platforms. You can follow my writing at therap.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Kristen
1: Lopez 88. Samantha Ellis, where are you online? You can mostly find me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek, but you can find my blog posts at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com and my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com.
3: Emily, what about you? I am across all social media platforms at Ms. Emily Edwards. That's Twitter and Instagram mostly. I also have a newsletter where I talk about 1950s and mid-century history, and you can sign up for that at Ms. Emily Edwards.com
2: as well. And our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do all sorts of new content, including that weird upcoming episode of Based on a True Podcast, all about Errol Flynn. That's going to be fun to record. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Of course, me and Emily have our books out now. You can order them wherever you buy books. We will be back in July, actually on July 5th, with a new episode. Chill them.